RBN. It's a beautiful day at Little Beaver Brewery, beautiful day for a podcast. People are out having a good time. Best patio in town, I still think. The new menu is amazing. I'm still working my way through it. I had the Reuben the other day. That was really good. So please support Little Beaver because they support PodBN. And come and check them out on 5 Finance Drive. Hey, Donna. How you doing today? I'm doing great, Tyson. Thanks for stopping by here. You're welcome. I haven't talked to you in person for a really long time. With COVID being in the way, it feels like we're... Uh, it feels like it's harder to see people around. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, actually, um, I, w- I got onto the council in 2019, and it wasn't even a year that I sat at the dais before COVID hit. Yeah. And then for two years, we were off it. So now we're back. And so it seems like my term was shrunk. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in... Um, in hearing about that, um, I knew you before you were on council. We were on a little budget um, task force that Diana Hellman put together. That's how we met. Um, right. And uh, remember, you were a frequent public commenter at the time. I was. <laughs> um, okay. For uh, I found how you got interested in local politics to be to be interesting. Um, how you got engaged? Do you uh, can you go back and share that story um <clears throat> yes I, I downsized when my kids grew up and um I moved into a neighborhood in War Two, and it was um a relatively new neighborhood but there were a lot of issues as far as uh the developer did not complete the work that was supposed to be done and part of that was a result of the housing bust so, uh, anyway, there were a lot of issues. Street lights weren't put in. The uh, surface stormwater was not maintained or put in properly. So I started reaching out to people to get an answer and resolved. And um, that's how I got started, basically, was sure. a neighborhood thing, yeah. which is kind of like strong towns <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that um that's something that we discovered kind of a similar time and became part of your platform when you ran mm-hmm. and i talk about it a lot on the podcast and uh you know i i'm curious about what it if you can recall back what what attracted it you to it what what made it resonate with you so much oh the strong the towns. strong towns message um, yeah. well yeah it goes back to that um that particular time, the first document I started reading was the Chapter 4 codes, because that was related to development. That's a subdivision code? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that basically fit right into the problem I was working on, and I always do my homework, so Mm -hmm. to speak, because I wanted to be able to have a good argument as to why it should be fixed. and, and So... Anyway, then I was introduced to another document which talked about fiscal impact with growth, 
within the community. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, here's this neighborhood on the periphery of town that, in effect, was neglected. Um, the I shouldn't say that's unfair to the city. Um, it was built by a developer that did not have a very good reputation for quality of his subdivisions. And um, I personally wanted to hold the developer accountable. I wasn't mad at the city. I was trying to put the city, or put the developer's feet to the fire by the city, Mm -hmm. using those codes as an enforcement tool. Um, But anyway, the problem got solved. But the second document I was introduced to was a consultant document that talked about the, the fiscal impact, and we always hear about economic impact, but we don't always hear about the fiscal impact. So when you build things, there is a long-term cost. Um, so then when I heard about Strong Towns, which you introduced me to, in my mind that meshed. And I just went on from there. Yeah. So, yeah. and basically, most of the time when I spoke at council, it did have to do with budget. It had to do about, you know, oh, let's put a hotel downtown. And I was like, no, what is the fiscal impact? What's the return on investment? And those are the kind of questions I ask myself when things come before council or whether I was a citizen or now on the council. So, yeah. Yeah, so at that time, um, it's interesting to, you, you might not have an answer for this, but a lot of people, if there's something they don't like about their neighborhood, their response is to complain about it, maybe put a social media post out there, but you took that extra step. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to figure out who I need to talk to. I'm going to try to advocate for my community. Um, what, what do you chalk that up to? Is it <laughs> maybe age. Okay. <laughs> you know, partly. Um, and... And also personality, I suppose. Um, What the developer did was not right, um, shirking his responsibilities. And, um, yeah, that's my neighborhood. It's my houses. Those are my neighbors. And, you know, it was actually a dangerous situation. There was erosion where the people that live kind of next door, they had little kids playing out in their yard. Mm -hmm. And the grass was so overgrown, it really, it was like, eight feet tall okay. and there was erosion and I was thinking to myself if one of those kids slipped over the bank they wouldn't be able to get out of the muck and then also it was the summer with the highest rate of West Nile virus mm-hmm. which that was a perfect breeding ground for West Nile virus Yeah, I couldn't yeah. myself and then my neighbors couldn't sit out on their deck because of the this sounds awful. The stench of rotting vegetation. So it was really a neighborhood issue that needed to be resolved. Yeah. I went around the neighborhood, got petitions, you know, submitted them to the city, and I just basically wanted action, and I wouldn't give up. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's that's a that's a great um, great example of hopefully and inspiring to others of uh, if there's something you don't like, you're moving beyond that. Uh, just anger, just thinking how 
how can we do something about it? Not everyone has to get on council, right? But um, no. But it led to that for you. So uh, do you remember when you decided that you were going to do that? Do you remember that moment when you're like, oh, gosh, I think I need to do this? <laughs> oh, run for council? Run for council, yeah. Um, well, actually, my predecessor, David Sage, he had just gotten elected um, when I started going to council, which was 2014. So when he said that he wasn't going to run again, I was like, okay, I will do that. Okay. So. so it wasn't a hard decision for you? No. To make, okay. No. no. Right. Cool. <laughs> um, so uh, so I, I do definitely want to touch back on that, that report you talked about and the, um, the Strong Towns aspect. Yeah, let me just put a pin in that for a second. I'm interested more in your experiences, too. So um, when you, you, so you got on council, what would you say was as you expected it to be and what would you say something some things that were very different from what you expected it to be a little of both I mean obviously I saw the council interaction in the public but I didn't understand or realize what goes on behind the scenes and the general public I should be ashamed of myself for some of the criticism, but the general public doesn't realize, you know, how many things the city manager and staff are juggling and how many items are coming down the pike, but the, you know, the public doesn't know about. They're complaining about stuff, and it's like, yeah, we will be taking care of it. It's going to be in, you know, next year's budget or whatever. So, um... In that way, it's different, and <laughs> you have, the mayor doesn't vote, so you have nine people representing nine different areas of the community, which are really very different, and so to try to come to consensus is a lot of work, so I didn't realize how much time is, is necessary yeah. to do the work. Not only do you have to do all the reading of the packets every week but then you also have to yeah come to consensus or talk to your colleagues to throw ideas back and forth about how many hours a week would you say you spend well i'm probably <laughs> i'm probably you know well i shouldn't say i'm unusual unusual but um yeah i get the packet on thursday so i skim it on thursday for maybe an hour and then um, I look into it seriously on Saturday because staff wants to have questions by Monday. They have a meeting meetings on Monday for, for the for the agenda. So before the council meeting. So then. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I might be reaching out to my council members, and depending on how many I talk to, you know, it adds up hours. But that's only a very small part of being an alderman. I am constantly on the phone with residents that have concerns. And this may sound weird, but that's the most um, enjoyable part of being a uh, council member or elected. Yeah. Because it's it's almost like instant gratification. Someone 
you know, has a problem. Many times it's easily solved. And then I get all the thanks, even though the, <laughs> even though the staff did all the work. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So would you say, I've heard estimated 30 hours a week. Um, is that? Well, that yeah, right? I would say, yeah, it's Basically almost like a, a job. It's like a job. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that I have said here before, and I'll keep saying it over and over again, whether, however you feel about somebody who's on city council or county board, they're... I guess technically you get paid a little, but basically it's a full-time job that you're doing for free, and people are deserving of our respect for dedicating so much of their time to the community. Um, well, I kind of joke because, uh, yeah, people will say, oh, well, you're paid, and yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's, it's like, I think it's 4800 a year and then taxes taken out. So if you calculate hours per week or per month, I'm actually paying the city <laughs> the work that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I'm joking, but, you know. Yeah, it does, um, it does surprise people. I think especially the mayor, it surprises people that the mayor of a town, Bloomington size, that that's not the person's only job uh, when I tell them that. In fact, that they get paid a little more than council members, but still... Then you have the extra expenses of meeting people for coffee and lunch and all these things, and I'm pretty sure you wind up in the hole regardless. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, important to keep in mind. So, yeah, that. Uh, do you find that? Uh, trying to figure out how to put this. I guess if it's behind the scenes, you probably don't want to talk a lot about it on a on a podcast. But in general, our the interactions you have with other council members on issues pretty cordial and constructive when you're talking to them? Is there... Um, you, you tend to think politics is people butting heads with each other and hating each other and dividing up into sides, but it sounds like you're calling pretty regularly and talking over things with people. Yeah, I don't mind answering the question, but it's really kind of complicated because, um, again, this might have to do with age. I was a supervisor, okay, and you kind of—that's a political job, whether you want to admit it or not. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you need to work toward a common goal. You may not agree in the direction—I mean, which path to get there—but at the end of the day, it's it's the common endpoint that you're working toward. Um, I always work toward consensus. It, whereas some people are more trying to herd the cats or get the group to agree with them. And what I mean by consensus is that, again, nine people, nine areas to the community, you need to come together as a group, this is me speaking, to come to a decision that everybody can live with. That doesn't, it's not the same as compromise, so to speak. But after having discussions, well, consensus requires discussions. So yeah. that's what I worked on. Okay. Yeah, um, you mentioned you do your homework on things, and part of that's talking to people who disagree with you too, right? I, I make an effort to, but some people don't always want to do that. Um, 
fortunately or unfortunately, people that don't agree with me don't necessarily want to talk to me, which I can't force someone to do that, but I am open to having conversations. I mean, I meet with different people with different perspectives for coffee, and um, yeah, I make my case, and they make theirs, and you know, at the end of the day, after the vote, I move on. I don't look back, hold a grudge, nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I would like to talk a little bit more about that that fiscal impact study. Um, you sent it to me before the podcast. Um, let's see, what was the what was the name of that? It's uh, people, Tilly. People can find it on the City of Bloomington oh, website. Oh, it's Tischler Bice. T-S-C-H-L-E-R-B-I-S-E. I'll link that in the show notes if anyone else wants to read it while we're talking about it. Um, so, yeah, this is the summary of cost of growth issues and recommended implementation steps. I mean, that's a, that's a catchy title, right? <laughs> and actually, it fits into Strong Tom's. It, I mean, really, it, it really does. Yeah, it, it was remarkable when I read it. Um, in particular, what jumped out at me is this one statement about, yeah, the city has essentially acted as the banker to the development community by front-ending roads and utility infrastructure in hopes of being reimbursed by new growth at a later date. So, um, so yeah, what is that or just other parts of this? What what jumped out at you about it? Um... I don't know if I said this earlier in our conversation, but uh, every development has a, a cost to the city. And I personally don't hear that as part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. I hear, oh, we're going to attract businesses. and Oh, this is an econo- have an economic impact, like a soccer complex or you know, even the... Even the water park, um, and I keep asking the question from staff and the city manager, and even mention it to my colleagues: What is the long-term maintenance cost? Yeah. And those questions are often not answered. And if they are not, I will not vote in favor. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, that's my logic behind voting against something is that if they cannot show me the fiscal impact, then I cannot support something because of what it says in this document. Yeah. Well, and we see that here now, right? If you look at things that are 30 years old, then they're in that first cycle where you need to fix them. Oh, where's the money? Where's the money for that? And there isn't any. It hasn't been saved up. It's been used on other things. Mm-hmm. And so then things keep getting older and older, and um, yeah, it's a, it's not a it's not a concept that they, after this report it seems this that the city's practices took to heart to to do that. Um, I don't think it's like the people that are involved because I when I talk to people in the city they seem it's not like they're intentionally putting their heads in the sand they care a lot about their job and about the community I don't know, what do you what do you chalk it up to why is there that resistance to look at that long-term maintenance cost well I think in general people 
don't look long-term. And I'm guilty of that, too. Um, I, I, I kid my children, uh, which are they're in their 30s. They grew up with Nintendo. And so I view, that, I view it as the Nintendo response. It's like immediate gratification. And um, that's not always a good thing. So you do have to look at the long term uh, and how it affects everyone. I, when I spoke at public comment, I always, in the back of my mind, kept thinking about um, the lower economic stratus. Because if we raise taxes, it disproportionately affects that population. Mm-hmm. So to fix all these decrepit things or expand and add more could possibly require raising taxes. And I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. So, Have you seen the Strong Towns uh, article about <clears throat> like estimating how much a home would have to how much you would have to tax a home in order to pay for all the stuff that's built for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's ten, it, yeah, many, yeah. many, many times more than what anybody would think was reasonable. Right. Um, and it even says that in this report that residential properties mm-hmm. don't generate positive revenue yeah. for the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you see risk that we're going to fall back into these old habits now that there's this housing demand? Yes. And I have said, I haven't said this publicly, I guess I'm saying it now, Um, we need to be very strategic. I've been here long enough. Um, Corporate South was a cornfield when I moved here. I watched it be built. Um, I watched the Northeast Quadrant just grow very fast. Um, And that was basically the euphoria of Diamond Star and Mitsubishi. And then, of course, the housing crash. Um, And so now there's all this euphoria with Rivian, and I'm really happy that there's growth. But there's a lot of areas in the community that, yes, infill. We need to... This is an opportunity to focus on infill. For so long we've been putting it off and putting it off when, you know, if there's not a lot of growth or need for housing, then it's kind of like, oh, that goes on the back burner. But this is a perfect time to focus on the core and infill. Yeah. That can mean a lot of different things to people. What are some things that come to mind to you when you think about focusing on infill? <laughs> well, you know, there are areas out in the periphery that are considered infill, like tier one infill. Well, yeah. And, yeah, and I don't, I don't buy into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So in the, for, for context, in the comprehensive plan, there's, you, you, you can go out and find a map. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes, too, um, where it shows, like, here's different areas, and this is Tier 1 priority, this is Tier 2, Tier 3, and there's things in there that are Tier 1 that I don't think pass the reasonableness check of really being, being infill. Um, could be, my, the, one that, the one that came up, Recently, was I think in your ward where they were calling something infill because it was already platted for development, but they were actually the most southwesternly houses in Bloomington being built. And the fact that we would call that infill is pretty silly. <laughs> and they weren't even houses, it was a trailer park. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. 
a trailer park next to houses. Okay. Or yeah. sandwiched between yep. You're right. two You're neighborhoods. Right. So yeah, um, so yeah, redefining what our in, what truly our info priorities are is a good one. Well, um, I I have said this many year, for many years also um, that I truly think that the vitality of downtown would increase. I want to say by osmosis if energy and infill and infrastructure was addressed in the surrounding areas, mm-hmm. the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, get the sidewalks fixed. Get the sewers and streets fixed and up to modern standards. And then people will be willing to invest. And then their walking distance from downtown, and then downtown becomes more vibrant. Yeah. You know, maybe even a grocery store. Mm-hmm could be placed, you know, in a corner, like, that's what I grew up with. You could walk to this, you know, drugstore on the corner. Yeah, yeah. You know, buy lunch meat, you know, at the deli. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with uh, a side note on that grocery store thing that just occurred to me recently, um, my kids love strawberries, so we buy strawberries a lot, but lately, because of supply chain issues, they haven't been as fresh, so they go bad in about two days for us. And so if, we don't, if we're not on our guard eating those strawberries, we've thrown away a lot of rotten strawberries, and so we're going to the store more. We're going more frequently because our fresh produce doesn't last as long, and I'm fortunate enough, not fortunate enough, I chose to live in a place that's pretty close to a grocery store. We're, we're just a block north of one, the two of them, kind of. But people who are ha- having to drive more significant distances to the grocery store, it's less convenient for them. Uh, and some of that, so uh, it occurred to me that some of the way that we've constructed our cities is also reliant on this, uh, on your groceries lasting longer and on things uh, on things being fresher than they have been post-COVID. So just random, like, random thought <laughs> that I had. <laughs> well. And having a neighborhood grocery would be nicer because then you could just stop by and grab the thing you need instead of driving across town to get it. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if it's a function of the United States or whatever, but it seems that neighborhood grocery stores, well, they can't compete with something like Walmart or even Jewel and Kroger. So having a neighborhood grocery store is is difficult. But if a grocery store was in a neighborhood and the 50 or 100 families that lived within walking distance went there on a regular basis, the produce wouldn't go bad in the store. Yeah. And then you could go every day or every other day. Mm -hmm. I don't want to compare America with Europe, but some of the older uh, historic towns on the East Coast are set up that way because they model after the older cities in Europe. Yeah, and their their zoning's different too. To more tolerance of mixed use zoning, they have commercial and residential in the same place where mm-hmm. um, a lot a lot of. The majority of residential areas, you're not allowed to have any commercial uses here mm-hmm. now, too. Um, would you be open to a conversation on that point of um, talking about more business uses allowed in residential areas? You think that's a good conversation for the community to have? I do. Um, 
Oh, I hope the staff doesn't listen to this. Uh, <laughs> I would, no, I would really like to go back and look at the zoning. I think that now, again, with Rivian and the housing crisis and just working at home and the effects yeah. of COVID, I think it would be of value to go back and at least review and maybe amend certain things because yes I do think that certain business obviously you don't want toxic producing businesses yep. in a residential mm-hmm. but you know what is wrong with a, uh, a drugstore or you know, beautician barbershop that type of thing yeah I think the toy store be, yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's it's interesting to me because I'm working from home the majority of time now and so I'm conducting business, quote unquote. It's not a consumer. It's not a consumer-facing business, but uh, I'm definitely doing business in my house, and a lot of people are. And it's uh, sort of a—it's definitely been a shift where most people are not just living one place and working another place. Now we've mixed those up more, and it's a good time for us as a society to think about mixing some other things in maybe <laughs> well you, you just made an interesting statement because okay I drive to work and on the way home I pick up fresh strawberries yeah. whereas now if you're working from home and living you know you don't go off very often you have to make a special trip which means you know yeah. for me it's a 20 minutes out and 20 minutes back because sure. there is no food yeah you're sales. in a food desert right yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah yeah there's no retail either so, you know, it's just, it's residential. Yeah. And golf courses. Residential <laughs> golf course. You walk to a golf course, that's good. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to, if you're going to go golfing, you should go walking, right? If you, if you should walk over to it, carry your clubs, get some exercise. Well, yeah, and so those carts. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, you brought up downtown. Um, that's uh Strong Towns talks about, along with Urban 3, they talk a lot about how important downtowns are for the being the heart of the community from a fiscal standpoint, the most tax-generated per acre. Um, are you, uh, do, you, do you agree with those concepts when you read it? Um, I do agree with those concepts, but I have not seen what taxes they're referring to, if it's property tax or sales tax, Mm -hmm. because currently, well, it makes a difference. Because if you look again at the comprehensive plan, the Northeast Quadrant generates a lot of taxes, and it's not from the residential, it's from the commercial. And the commercial went in there because there's residential that have disposable income. So... That, I think, is what drives the Northeast Quadrant as being a a revenue generator. But if you bring in, like, that eyeglass company that, you know, is downtown in the Old State Farm Building and actually has people working there and they can eat down, down there or purchase things down there, that will generate if the people, if the neighborhoods around the downtown can walk to downtown and there is some kind of retail, that will drive growth. But you know, to me, it's complicated. And I, I support the downtown. I'm not sure um, putting a lot of money 
into just downtown without considering some of the other issues. They need to be tied together. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I want to talk about that. I think you knew where I was going. I wanted to talk about your thoughts on the, the streetscape proposal. Um, you, you mentioned in the comprehensive plan that, uh, that that is something that caught my eye in there that didn't match what I thought. The fact that some of the areas that I would have thought would have been uh, loss leaders like the northeast side, they showed up as being positive areas. And then um, it's on my to-do list sometime to figure out more about what that methodology was that they used in the comprehensive plan. There's a lot of judgment you can put in there, right? Like you said, what do you count as? How far back do you count um, the expenses related to it? So if you if you say, well, it costs $100 million to set this place up, but we're just going to ignore that because it's in the past, well, I think it's kind of relevant. Um, what kind of future costs do you take into account? So there's some judgment in there. I'm not saying it's... I'm sure it was accurate for what it was meant to be, but I'd like to learn more about that because it conflicts with things that I've seen elsewhere from Urban 3 in particular mm-hmm. as an organization. And um, I hope that while I'm on planning commission, the comprehensive plan comes back so that I can learn more about that because we hired a consultant to do it, so I don't think anyone in the city really knows what happened. What the, oh. I don't think anyone in the city now really knows what went into that. I even talk, I talked to the McLean County Regional Planning Commission, too, and they didn't really know either, so um, just kind of added it to my to-do list of curiosities. And well, I'm going to throw <laughs> one more wrench into that conversation, is that um, our, the way, our tax revenue, only 12% of the property tax is our revenue, and all the rest is sales tax. So, yeah. you know, when you talk about generating revenue, it would be retail revenue. Yeah. And that is definitely concentrated in the Northeast Quadrant. So... Yeah, because uh, the... Because of... Like, what's off veterans, you mean? Like, Meyer and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. area. Okay. Yeah, north of, north of Empire. Oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah. see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I was going more further out to the Eagle subdivision. Oh. Just Four Seasons is the only thing I think that I know out there oh, that's doing yeah. it. But anyway... Um, but yeah, uh, downtown, uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts because I'm really, I have not looked deeply into what the proposal was, but I find myself conflicted it, um, as a big downtown supporter. I want to be for it, but then when I think about what it actually is and how much money is being spent, I'm, I'm hesitant. And so I'm, I'm curious of why you ended up with uh, voting against that proposal. Um, I think in the media, it's just that you hate downtown and you're a, you're a stingy conservative who doesn't want to spend money on anything. So let's we'll start with that. <laughs> well, that's partly... No, it's not even partly true. Um, well, the first thing I want to say is I was the advocate for outdoor dining downtown. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure people are aware of that. Um, because I recognized that those businesses specifically the restaurants were struggling and I did not want them to close. They're some of the best restaurants in town. So, um, and they didn't necessarily qualify like um, some of the other retail shops for those loans in the first wave. So, yes, I'm very supportive of downtown. However, 
three quarters of a million dollars plan when we have done three or four plans that have already had neighborhood input from the downtown and wherever else, Yeah, I could not understand why the collected data could not be applied to what was being brought forward. And I asked specifically for the, um, the deliverable that was produced by one of these other places they did the work for. And um, yes, they did all this interaction with the community over, I don't know, six or eight months. And, um, and then they put together all sorts of charts and, and everything. And there's a map in there that shows garbage cans and trees and park benches and, you know, different things. But it didn't really put, there's nothing in there about cost mm-hmm. per, per street, let's say. So three quarters of a million dollars for only a plan. And on top of it, like I told you about how I process things, I only had 18 days from the time I saw the plan until the vote. And to me, I wanted, I needed more time. I needed more conversation. I had a lot of questions that couldn't be answered. And then the fiscal impact. I'm always thinking about fiscal impact. Um, So... Where is this money going to come from to pay for all new sewers downtown? And the streets were just recently um, resurfaced, some of them anyway. Yeah. So we're going to have to rip those up. Um, and I, I went to some of those meetings, and I alluded to this at the council meeting when I voted no. The downtown business owners cannot come to consensus about what they want downtown. I believe, and this is just a belief, that staff did attempt to take all the different plans and, you know, come to consensus. And I think they were struggling with that. And so it was decided probably that let's start from scratch. But it really frustrated me. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and where is the money coming from then? I think you know the answer to that. Well, the money is coming from ARP and... ARP is is the... Yeah, the American Rescue Plan from the federal government. And uh, the council voted unanimously to put the majority of the money toward infrastructure. And then uh, $2 million for economic development, $2 million for socioeconomic projects. So, um, anyway... The city manager and I interpret what's allowable in the fund for funding using our because it's federal funding and they have strict regulations. So it says my interpretation is that general economic development is not eligible for these funds and it specifically says that I can send you a screenshot if you would like to see it Um, and also the argument of uh, loss of revenue we have uh, financial reports every month and if you go back and look at the meetings 
you will hear things like our um, sales tax revenue is up because of the, you know, the Amazon effect. With mm-hmm. the, you know, we can now get local sales tax from online orders. So, you know, our sales tax revenue is up. This, that, and everything else is up. However, uh, motor fuel tax is down. Well, it also specifically says in the final rule that it has to be aggregate loss of revenue, not line item. So my response also was, did we lay off any workers? Was our service reduced or eliminated? And the answer is no, and therefore it's not eligible under that criteria. Uh-huh. And the city manager and I will have to agree to disagree. Okay. And the vote, it passed, so it's in the past. Yeah. And you had said something about want, wanting to use these funds for things like affordable housing or infill or other things that would benefit the community and now what half of it is gone this is a half of the amount that we had available yes and actually that was one of the things that I did I talked to my other colleagues about that and they were supportive Um, and the idea is is that you use this ARP fund for the intent of the ARP fund is to provide for those disproportionately affected by COVID, which falls into the 61701 zip code, west side of the city. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and my recommendation, suggestion was to use that to incentivize small developers to come in and rehab existing buildings into duplexes or quads, or take the vacant lots and put in um, I'm going to call them row houses, but it would be you know houses that would maybe three on a lot if the lot is large enough, still following the zoning code. Yeah. Um, it's a perfect storm. We've got the money, incentivize developers, get the infill at least moving, and then once it continues, maybe, or once the money is gone, maybe if it's successful enough, the developers will want to continue doing that. Yeah, yeah. So. That's a, a thing that comes up a lot when I talk to people about infill is a lack of expertise and support for... A lack of expertise for small developers and a lack of support for them to get mm-hmm. started. There's a lot you need to learn, and the term small developer sounds like something more than it is. It's really, I have... <laughs> I have a piece of land and I want to build something on it, and this is my first time doing it, or maybe second or third. That's a uh, there, there's one plot of land I know of in town where there's two parcels next to each other, and one of them is vacant, and one of them has a house on it. The one with the house on it owns the vacant one, and they have a garden there. It's a nice garden, but it's in the middle of Bloomington. It, there's no reason that it doesn't make sense. There's some sort of perversion of incentives that's going on. The fact that the, the highest use of that property that we found is for that person to use it as a garden. Is that, it a private garden or is it for it, a community? No, it's private. Yeah. So it, it seems like there should have been some sort of 
market incentive for them to sell that and build a house on it. It, it shouldn't be, things shouldn't be set up so that that's what makes sense to do there. And as opposed to, I'm going to buy some cornfield and build the house out there. And um, that's what a small developer would do, I guess. Well, there are but, small developers, and actually the state actually... Um, I don't remember the number of the bill or, or the title, but to summarize what was just passed recently, um, there is a state bill that supports that type of um, activity for developers. Yeah. It gives them some kind of incentive, and if we, we as a city add to that or use that bill as leverage, I think it can be done. Yeah. See, so I, I don't hate the west side. I don't hate the downtown. <laughs> when I think it's interesting, too, to, to... I like the way you framed that. If if the area around downtown is more prosperous, then that bleeds into making downtown more prosperous, too. Um, I definitely think there's a justification for redoing sewers and ensuring that there's high-speed internet down there. You're nodding. You'd agree with that. I and I don't know why... I, quarter million dollar study would be necessary to take such action um, plus, I agree plus the downtown task force just pulled that all together and, um, I agree Justin my uh, co-host he he was on that task force so when that happened I texted him and I was like didn't you guys already do this for free and he, he quipped back that maybe the public comment sections we should all just show up with copies of the task force plan and just drop it on the table in front of people and let them know it's already yeah. there. Yeah. Um, it, well, it goes back to I think I don't know how many people on staff or how many downtown business owners you know went back and looked at all that stuff. If they can't agree or you know put all those plans together, yeah, then. That is a barrier. You know, people can blame the council all they want, but if if everybody doesn't get on board and work together for the common goal, it, it's going to be much more difficult to yeah. accomplish. Yeah. Well, thanks for explaining that. Hopefully that sheds a little bit more light. I, uh, I tell people that... You in particular, I know you think deeply about things and you, you want to make an informed choice. Unfortunately, it, there's only so much so much to cover in a, a media coverage or something, and it usually just ends up being, here are the yeses, here are the noes, and then you move on with things, and there's a lot of subtlety is, is, left, is left out with that. <laughs> well, there's one more thing about that, the downtown streetscape is that the... Um, the, the agenda item was a compound item. So you had to, you know, agree for the plan and agree for the funding, which is compound. So yeah. if it had been separated, instead of, like, agenda item ABC, all, vote on all three, it would have, it may have been turned out, turned out differently, where, you know, people would question the funding, but, you know, approve the idea of the plan and maybe use reserves or just take the money out of the um, general fund. Yeah, yeah. So. There's always a danger of approving a plan without a dedicated funding source, but that dedicated funding source is a, is a special one, right? <laughs> I understand that, but again, 18 days for the council to review that and 
It's a lot of money. I won't go into any specific details. I don't want to call anybody out. But questions like that could have been discussed. You know, what about the funding? You know, how much do they really need? Could we cut back the, um, like Nick said, cut back the size, pull it back to just the buckle, you know, that type of thing? That's not necessarily practical, but the original task force and all those other plans was the buckle. Yeah. Which, of course, would not be as expensive as what was being proposed. Uh, I've heard people say, to the point about investing in infrastructure in areas, I've heard people say, you know, the former mayor, Mayor Renner, used to say this a lot. Well, no, nobody comes and moves into a community because they've got beautiful roads and sewers. That's not what makes things attractive. Um, what I what I hear from what Chuck Marone from Strong Towns has said is that investment in infrastructure is a signal from the community that something's important. You're you're sprinkling it with a little love, and you're saying this is a this is an area of the community that we want to invest in, and that encourages then private investment in it too. Because if the sidewalks and streets are being redone, then people would psychologically, oh, there's something going on here versus everything's crumbling apart. Why would I Why would I fix my place? I should just move out to someplace that's not crumbling. Um, I assume that that line of argument resonates with you, makes sense to you? Well, that basically is what I was talking about, addressing and updating and modernizing the neighborhoods surrounding downtown. And this is, this is kind of trite, um, but I, I would go in there, too. The primary reason people come to a place to live is for a job. If you want investment, you have to... Um, yes, if someone's going to come to this community to invest, they are going to look at things like the streets. They can't see the sewers, but they're going to look at the streets, and they are going to ask the question, what kind of management, which means the elected official and the staff, what kind of management do we have here? They're not taking care of it. And I even likened it to, if I'm going to sell my house, number one priority is the curb appeal because someone will walk right by. So, I mean, that's a pun, curb appeal. Yeah. But it's very simple. And then when, uh, when the sewer plan was presented, um, and pictures were actually put up on the screen of toilets that had backed up in people's uh-huh. basements. Mm-hmm. And my comment at the time that we are, um, you know, this is the 21st century. We are a well-to-do community, and we have medieval sewer system. It needs to be fixed. And here we are with the flood in 2022. Yeah. Yep, that was my uh, in, in that the, was my community. Yeah, that was Eastgate where I live. I know. And in the last what month, the month prior to the vote for the downtown streetscape, we had three major water main breaks that required water boil orders. Now, does that reflect a well-educated, financially? 
well-to-do community. And that's a rhetorical question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to that fiscal analysis of what we've done for the last many decades. The, The sprawling out, investing in new, 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 not taking care of the old and then not having enough money to um, not having enough money stored away to take care of it it's how it's how businesses run and I, I hate saying that because I, I kind of roll my eyes when people say you should run government like a business but there's some senses that you should because uh, I mean my a lot of my training in insurance is forecasting future expenses and liabilities and figuring out how much money we need to save right now to be uh, to meet those demands later on. They're, they're called reserves. It's, it's huge. State Farm has billions and billions and billions of them. Um, State Farm's net worth is, is publicized. We have over $100 billion. But that's not, that's not the assets that we have. Assets are many times that, but we... We, it's net worth because it's net over what we have saved up. It's not really our money. Like we, we have assets, but it's not really ours. It's we're saving it because somewhere down the road we're going to need to pay that to someone, either in the form of a life insurance policy or a pension or uh, a longer term like auto payment, like a liability. So it's it, it seems so natural to me for my 15 years I've spent. <laughs> And then when I come and look at a city budget where they say, well, we have a surplus this year because there's a car that's breaking, but we decided we're going to let it, we're going to have it go another year. So it like goes over that barrier of when the fiscal year ends. So, oh good. Now we've got another $20,000 to use. Like you don't, the car's still broken. <laughs> it's just, you just, that's not a surplus. That's just <laughs> waiting. It's well, not- <laughs> yeah. I, well, you and I, worked on that task you know budget task force thing which um and yes i learned a lot that municipal budgets are not not the way most people like businesses and personal finances um are done so i still don't understand it completely but you're correct it doesn't make any sense and you know i don't want to sound like i am negative about the city when i ran i ran on the fact that I love this town. Mm-hmm. I will fight for it. So. Yeah. yeah, I don't think this is my understanding. I don't think it's anything that the city's doing again. It's a system it operates in. Um, the city calculates its pension liability because it has to calculate its pension liability. And I would love it if there was a requirement to calculate infrastructure liability. I would find that to be... Well, uh, I would find that to be fascinating. So maybe one, maybe if enough sewers break, then and water mains break, then we'll decide that well, we need to do that. You know, so. sewers are not seen. You know, that's that's something too. If you can, you know, see something, then you're more likely to fix yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, got a little bit more time here. You've been very generous with your time. I wanted to uh, ask about a couple other hot topics. These are actually both from normal, but I'm curious. I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. So one of them was the the um, residential area that was being built that had duplexes in it instead of single-family homes, and there was a bunch of uh, bunch of negative public feedback on that. 
Um, I don't. I assume you have enough to worry about in your ward and in Bloomington that are passively aware of that. I think it's interesting from a strong town standpoint. Um, do you have any reaction to that that debate? <laughs> well, first of all, it's NIMBYism, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and NIMBY being not in my backyard. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and. Yes, people that have invested whatever it is, $300,000 in their home, and um, they were under the impression that this was going to be, you know, an empty field and nothing was going to be built, and that's what the realtor told them when they bought the house. Then, yeah, I think I would be also kind of upset. But that piece of property is right next to the highway. So putting in duplexes... If people want to buy it, a duplex in that area where they have constant road noise, that is their choice and mm-hmm. should be given an option. That type of that plot of land will prob would probably not be developed with those, you know, single family homes. Yeah. And I think the original plan, my understanding from reading the the news media, is that the original plan when it was first plotted decades ago was for um, multifamily like duplexes yeah 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 I I I agree with what you're saying there I I also feel conflicted because I I would like to see more dense residential uses but that's not really what I'm thinking of (laughs) I'm thinking of more around the core of downtown and being able to increase density there um, especially places that are I would say like within the within the veterans like veterans to With, Main Street I think we could increase density in that area but well, something way out there normal I'm like ah okay I guess well, you know, everybody, everybody <laughs> criticizes veterans and especially with that you know, fatal accident recently. Yeah. But it was originally built as a beltway. Yes. To go around. It should have stayed know. that way. It yeah. should have stayed that way. And that yeah. would that's what I consider the core. You know, where you live basically is maybe the second wave of sprawl. Yep. The late sixties. Yeah. Yeah. So it really should have stopped there. there. Um I, I I think I should probably live on the outskirts of town, <laughs> right by State Farm Corporate. So uh but yes, yeah, it's, it's nowhere near it. You talk about I mean, you've you've been here before corporate south. When I when I was here in college, there was basically it's nothing but Krispy Kreme over there on Krispy Kreme Drive. Like it was mm-hmm. just <laughs> all that stuff's new too as well out there. So I think I think it. the Chateau and um, Best Buy, that yeah. little that shopping mall yeah, was, was uh, one of the one of the first that hopped veterans and the Burger King. So yeah. that little strip down in there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. But yeah. I also think that conflict is interesting because it shows how, um, I guess how, f- those of us who have been thinking about things like the growth Ponzi scheme, which is basically we're talking about how new, new growth is supposed to fund old growth and then you grow more to fund the old stuff and you just keep growing to fund it. Safe on calls, that's the growth Ponzi scheme and, Talking about that, talking about um, value per acre, talking about that type of stuff. Um, we, we've 
come a long way in the five years or so you and I have been thinking about it, but other people still, they're trying to live their lives, they have their home, they like their community, and they feel concerned about something which may change the character of their community in a negative way, and um, trying to be sympathetic to that, too, that not everyone has the same the same view of it. You know, they're just looking at, here's my home, and there's these things going to be next to my home that's going to affect me, and I can... I can get myself in that headspace of, of, um, of being upset about it. And also just, again, respect of not just being upset, but also taking initiative to go and speak to counsel, speak at public comment. Um, people should make their voices heard and hopefully then also be open to hearing the response back on things too. So. Well, well it's, it's kind of interesting because... Um, Things like duplexes and zero lot lines, they can be, be very attractive. You know, if you oh, yeah. if you actually Google zero lot lines, I mean, San Francisco housing pops yeah. up, those beautiful old homes. And, you know, not, I mean, you can't probably afford to build something like that now, but there's no reason why you couldn't have a design um, like an architectural design or have the developer um, create homes that would fit in one of the neighborhoods on the west side. Yeah. You yeah. Know, not match, but I like eclectic, you know? Yeah. That was one of the things, as a kid, <clears throat> since I grew up in the Netherlands, one of the things I loved about coming to America was houses you could run around. I remember that as a kid, just... Thinking it was so fun to be able to run around a house. It was very outside of my realm of. Uh, uh, so, so to me, houses that are connected to each other seem extremely natural. Mm-hmm. But when you have a city, when you have a country the size of the Netherlands, <laughs> it's a very small country. Yeah. You got to pack a lot of people in, especially um, when they built it out of the sea, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And a whole other thing when I talk to my friends from India about the density they have in India, they uh, it's very very different here. Um, but you, you mentioned. It's important to distinguish not trying to make it America to Europe, but thinking about, I don't see it as America versus Europe versus that traditional development pattern. Mm-hmm. The wisdom that we get from our ancestors of the way cities have been built for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've decided to build them differently since World War II. Mm-hmm. And we've done an experiment, so maybe now let's take a step back, reflect on the experiment, and think hey, are these traditions something that we can learn from? Can we go back to our roots a little bit and, and honor that wisdom? And I think that's an argument that speaks to, like, a, you know, the quote-unquote conservative part of the population of thinking that the, of, of the wisdom of traditions and uh, things of that nature. So when I bring up Europe, I try to do it in that. There's also super progressive parts of Europe like um, that are not as applicable to the culture here. So well, you know, they're... My in-laws were from Holland. So, but anyway, yeah, they're very... In general, I think Europeans and East Coast um, yeah, original towns are very protective of their history. Um, but, yes, are very open. You know, my, when I heard my mother-in-law talk, it was like the most tolerant country, you know, in, in Europe, which... That's pretty impressive to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, in my mind, is a progressive thought. But yes, I'm accused of being conservative because I want to conserve 
I want to protect the um, the history of the town. And yeah, if we end up demolishing all those historic buildings that surround the core, what does that make the core? Yeah, yeah. No, it. it it circles together, and, and again, why I love Strong Towns so much, because you can come, like you did from the fiscal side, and then you can see the social, the others come from the social side of seeing walkability and bikes and buses that they like, and trying to merge those things together, um, and you can do that in municipal politics in a way that I don't think you can do in state and federal politics, because we're not in camps like that oh. here. So, yeah. Well, you know, that's the role of a municipal government, really. Yeah. And if you're talking about doing social justice on the municipal level, it has to do with zoning and getting rid of the NIMBY. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boring stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> boring details. That's what I tell everyone. They're like, you're on planning commission, what do you do? I was like, it's pretty boring, I'm going to tell you. But I like it, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. But yeah, zoning laws are where the rubber hits the road. One last question. There's the proposal in normal to implement wards versus at-large, so that's something people have been thinking about. Um, What struck me in this conversation is that we spent a lot of time talking about things that aren't immediate needs for Ward 2, where you're coming from. Um, What what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of the ward system since you've been on the the council? I personally think they're of great value because the entire community is representative. It seems counterintuitive, but yeah, Ward 9's covered, the Northwest Corner uh, Quadrant is covered, the Core is covered, the Far West Side, Far Southwest Side, it's all covered. We all have different needs and, and, and different constituents. However, within each ward, the socioeconomic composition is is the same as the entire city. In other words, I have low to moderate income people living in my ward, and then I have the people that live in the country club area. So, um, but anyway, so I think it's very valuable. I also think that, um, I talked about consensus, I think I strongly believe that if you get a bunch of people into a room that have very different ideas and needs, and you come to a point where everybody can live with it, that is ends up being the best decision. And rubber stamping is not good um, because that does not take into account other voices. Mm-hmm. And from a personal standpoint, I'm not wealthy, and when I ran for office. Nobody really knew me except the people that watched me speak at public comment. So I was able to run and win without having to report um, the the amount of donations I I got because I didn't really get donations. I got a new pair of shoes and I knocked on five or six hundred doors mm-hmm. in my neighborhood and spoke to the people that I was going to represent. And that's how I got elected. Yeah, yeah. So a normal person can get elected. You don't have to have connections. And I don't have to answer to anybody other than my constituents. Sure, sure. Makes a lot of sense. 
money well, doesn't buy votes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, I always enjoy talking to you. I uh, and just it, just wanted to thank you publicly. You've always been very kind to me, very encouraging of me. Um, challenged me on some things, listened to me on other things, and I've uh, I've really enjoyed seeing your your tenure so far on the council. COVID was tough. We didn't really get to talk about that, but. I, I always make a point to thank anyone who was in a leadership position during COVID because no one knew that was coming and you had some really tough, unusual things to do. And I'm sure a lot of stress at a time when at a time when it was stressful enough just to worry about yourself, you had to worry about other people too. So, um, so I appreciate all that. And also for, for you coming today to talk to me. Thank you. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed all the time I've spent with you and known you and yeah. It's been a pleasure. Cool. We'll keep doing this for a few more years until, <laughs> until you get sick of it. <laughs> oh, um, my. Well, I uh, also want to thank Little Beaver Brewery for hosting us here. It's always, uh, every time I show up here on a Sunday, it is always packed in here. Families, people of all ages, and a wide variety of beverages. I had a seltzer today, I had an orange seltzer. They've got those on tap now if you haven't had those. It's a great summer drink, a little bit lighter. And there's a lemonade and an orange one that was really good. So stop by and check that out. And also check out the new food menu.